0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Before we get started with the podcast, I'd like to put in one more mention for my new book before it's published later this month. It's been 11 years since the first edition of Lead from the Heart was published, and many people have recently asked me why I waited until now to revise and rewrite it. Well, the direct answer is because I believe the world is finally ready for a thesis about leadership that clearly was ahead of its time in 2011, but which couldn't be better timed in 2022. I believe we finally reached the tipping point where people around the globe have reassessed their relationship with their jobs and with what's most important in their lives and now expect their workplace manager to embrace a totally new and supportive way of leading them. And with people continuing to quit jobs in record numbers, managers themselves are needing a blueprint to follow, one that not only explains why traditional leadership practices no longer work, but also how to specifically implement the new way. You can find more details on Lead from the Heart on amazon.com, as well as on my website, marxecrowley.com, but please know this, It's the culmination of my entire life's work. And my dream is to accelerate a worldwide movement where workplace managers learn to deeply care about and even love their people. And there's no way that can happen without your support. To that end, I'd be so honored if you'd purchase a copy for yourself and even copies for your team. Thank you so very much. And now let's get on with our show. Over the course of his career as a professor at the prestigious INSEAD Business School in Paris, Nathan Furr has interviewed many of the world's greatest entrepreneurs, including Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And along the way, he made the wild discovery that rather than being scared by uncertainty, they all seemed to thrive on it. And this influenced him to ask the big question. How might the rest of us learn to embrace uncertainty at a time when modern day life is proving to be at its most ambiguous and unpredictable? During the pandemic, he and his wife, Susanna, wrote the new bestseller, The Upside of Uncertainty, a book that offers extremely powerful ways of approaching all the uncertainty in our lives and shows us how to treat it more as a friend than as a foe. One of the bedrock ideas is while uncertainty in life can be both uncomfortable and stressful, Very little that has moved our own personal or professional lives forward has happened without change and an element of risk. And so their book is fundamentally upbeat about finding possibility and uncertainty and showing us how to successfully deal with it rather than trying to control it. As you'll hear, the first tapped into neuroscience, psychology, innovation, and behavioral economics to develop a four-stage toolkit to help people overcome the fact that mankind is hardwired by evolution to fear uncertainty. And as we all know, leaders who operate out of fear around uncertainty generally don't perform all that well when life or an important project don't go as planned. Lest anyone doubt that living with uncertainty is on the rise, Professor Furr points out that the World Uncertainty Index, created by economists at Stanford University, shows that uncertainty has been steadily rising in recent decades. He also quotes the former CEO at Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, who says, quote, there is ambiguity and paradox everywhere. And for people who like the linear route forward, life is getting harder and harder in any field, unquote. I hope you're ready to learn some great ways of minimizing the stress and strain that comes with uncertainty. And with that, let me please welcome you, Nathan and Susanna Furr, the podcast
1: thanks for having us
0: yeah thank you nice to meet you and bonjour (laughs) since you guys are in France yes I want to start right into your book you have a quote that I want to cite to get the conversation going you mentioned organizational theorist Carl Week who says that people act as if events cohere in time and space and that change unfolds in an orderly manner Then an episode occurs when people suddenly and deeply feel the universe is no longer a rational and orderly system. And what I think he's saying here is that we tend to treat the world as if it's something over which we have great control. And then we become, (laughs) I have a different expression, but profoundly distressed and delusion when events don't go as we plan them. So my first question for you is, why do we all choose to live under the illusion that life and the universe overall isn't ambiguous?
2: I think because it's easier that way for us. So, you know, Carl Weick was a very famous theorist. And I think what he's really highlighting there is that it's this shocking event that reveals the true nature of the world, which is it's always changing and that it's always uncertain. And so we are wired to be afraid of uncertainty. So we want to try to avoid that uncertainty. But the truth is that, you know, it's not such a bad thing that the world is uncertain because what it means is there's a great possibility of change. There's a possibility of new. And I think all of us, even though we intuitively want to pretend like things are within our control and things aren't changing – they're not really in our control. And when you kind of realize that, it's this kind of moment of maybe a little bit of peace in the sense that you're like, oh, so if it's not in my control, then I don't have to like force it. I don't have to make things happen to be successful. In fact, really what I've got to do is, is show up and be ready for the uncertainty and find the possibility that's hidden in it. You said we're wired to fear uncertainty. So why are we wired
0: to fear uncertainty? And is your prescription to unwire ourselves to
2: uncertainty and fear? Yeah, well, we have to think about where do our native intuitions and instincts come from. So if you talk to neuroscientists, some of my collaborators are neuroscientists, and they will tell you that when we observe the brain, when it encounters uncertainty, we have a, re- a reaction and it makes us feel anxious. And I think we were wired by evolution mm-hmm. to be that way because think 100,000 years ago, there wasn't a great deal of benefit to say going you know, 200, 300 miles away from your home. There just wasn't that much possibility out there. And so, So we were wired to stay close, stay at home, stay safe. But what's happened is that our world has fundamentally changed. It's safer in terms of, you know, natural dangers. There's no kind of wild predators out to get you, but it's also radically more full of possibilities. So the way that we've used technology to create a world that's connected, where the barriers to create and transact and interact have all come down. In fact, we live in a world that's really dynamic and changing, and there are massive benefits to going outside of our normal boundaries. And so I wouldn't say that we can necessarily unwire what evolution has given us, but more that we can learn that this wiring isn't maybe something to be trusted, that there is big possibility on the other side of uncertainty. And and so for me, that's the big insight is I've always been so curious about uncertainty and it was this realization that every possibility that you or I or any of us really care about, every achievement we've made that's significant, if you look back, before that achievement, there was a lot of uncertainty that you had to pass through. And so the core idea is this, uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin.
0: That's very clear. And I want to go in a different direction just in response to that. Something that you triggered in me is as we think about the pandemic of the past two years caught I mean, obviously, there were people predicting that this could happen, but when it happened and we were all shuttled back to our homes to work and didn't know when it was going to end and spending a lot of time in fear and worrying about whether or not we're going to get toilet paper and all that kind of experience that we had, it's led to or it coincidentally has led to a real spike in mental health, anxiety, depression, those kinds of symptoms. And I'm wondering if you both think that there's a connection there. So, in other words, we think the world is in our control, and then when it stops being in our control, that creates a certain sense of anxiety. Do you think that's contributed to it, or am I just completely off base?
1: No, I think it's absolutely contributing and connecting there. We actually have a son who really experienced a really severe episode of depression and and mania during this. And we could see how it literally just played out from over that first year of the pandemic. It just worsened. And I think what's interesting to realize here is why, why is it happening to us? And I think when we believe that we're in control and then all of a sudden we're not, it's so much more... Existential. There's this moment of, okay, if I don't have control right now, when am I going to get it? And if we don't take steps, because actually our son was seeing therapists and having help, but if we don't take steps to really embrace that human phenomenon that we were all facing, and I think for the people who did— who did practice emotional hygiene, which is one of the toolkits in our book under the sustain arm of the first aid cross for uncertainty, which we can talk about later. But if we don't practice real significant daily emotional hygiene, we tend to feel like something's wrong with us. We take it personally. That's what our son did. He he started questioning every single one of his talents as being useless or pointless or lame. He couldn't see the joy because he wasn't getting to even do the art that he loves to do. The studios were locked. The cafes were closed. We were in lockdown in France, which meant 6 p.m. curfews. You know, all of those beautiful things that kind of give us meaning were really stripped from our lives. And I think that that's one of the huge things is we take things personally, and then that's a slippery slope to some significant depression.
2: You know, if I were to bring this back to the core thesis, though, of the book. The core thesis is very simple, and it's that we live in a world of increasing uncertainty, but very few of us have been taught the tools to manage that. And when we don't have good tools, we tend to engage in these maladaptive behaviors. And so it's nobody's fault. I mean, maybe you had better parents than I did or a better school, but I certainly didn't learn how to navigate uncertainty. But but there's really great research that shows that people who do are capable of navigating the unknown. They're better at dealing with change, with the unexpected. And you know. so there's these literatures, for example, in fields like ambiguity, tolerance, uncertainty, avoidance, resilience, and all of them show very clearly that people who are have learned to navigate uncertainty are better entrepreneurs better leaders better when when change comes so to me it really i think what the pandemic highlighted was the importance of learning how to do this i mean this was a project that started long before the pandemic but i think the pandemic taught us all oh my gosh we haven't really been given the tools to navigate a really uncertain world
0: well i don't think that we even have the understanding that we've fully embraced that the world is not within our control that's a complete illusion and so we plan we organize you know we think through the details of things and we say okay then everything's going to go according to Hoyle. And then when it doesn't, I think we're mystified. You know, this is what the game of golf is about. Go out with somebody and play golf with them and, you know, they hit a bad shot and they're looking at you like, can you believe this happened? And I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's what happens here, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, this is why I wanted to have you both on because I'm really fascinated about this whole idea from a leadership standpoint. If you, if you realize that your plans aren't going to be executed the way you envision them, if you just understand that going in, then you're much more receptive to, okay, then let's respond to what happens versus cursing the gods and saying this shouldn't have happened and wasting all that energy. So um, before we get any further, I do want to go back and ask Susanna, if you could just pin down what you mean by practice daily emotional hygiene. Since you brought it up, it's important that we nail it down.
1: Yeah, well, I think it will look different for everyone, but it's actually an idea that we took from Guy Winch, who's a psychiatrist and professor at NYU. But he gives a brilliant TED talk about this idea. And he starts by explaining that physical hygiene wasn't always something we did. And the minute we did start washing our hands and brushing our teeth and cleaning out a cut, Well, our life expectancy went way up. And so emotional hygiene is just looking at a wound, cleaning a wound of an emotional type. So when we get our feelings hurt or when something goes wrong, it could be a small thing even, or it could be a huge thing when there's something hard, you know, a relationship that ends often humans tend to make the wound worse, which is something we don't do with physical hygiene. Even before we were washing our hands, we weren't purposely trying to infect ourselves. But he points out that often when something goes wrong, we just immediately attack ourselves, saying, of course, I'm so hideous. Why would this person like me or want to spend time with me? And we do this kind of on repeat because it's just that negative, nagging voice that we all carry around, that kind of critic. And The cool thing is, in popular psychology, Martin Seligman, he writes about this in Learned Optimism. We can learn how to be optimists. It's not really like you are or you aren't. It's more an explanatory style. And so emotional hygiene is daily kind of waking up and going, gosh, how do I feel today even? Oh, I'm still worrying about what happened yesterday. Okay, let's see. What can I do about it? Is there something I could do? If there is, do it and then move on. If there isn't, move on right now. And Find ways to feel, you know, comforted. So there's a lot of ways. I mean, I could go on about emotional hygiene for one hour alone because it is really, really crucial.
0: I understand. It's helpful to make sure that I'm always sensitive to people listening thinking, oh, I wish I understood what that meant. So I just wanted to take a moment and digress into that. And you did a very good job of explaining it. And I totally agree with you. So, you sort of alluded to this, but numerous studies across academia indicate that people who are comfortable with uncertainty prove to be more creative, more successful entrepreneurs and more effective leaders. So there seems to be a lot of upsides to having what you call uncertain ability, which is the skill to navigate all the unknowns in life. And I sensed in reading your book that you, Nathan, specifically have personally struggled like that came out to me. And I'm sure you intended it with your own feelings of uncertainty and ambiguity through your career, and that perhaps this had some influence on writing this book. So I wanted to ask you about that.
2: Yeah, good attention to details there. You're absolutely right. One of the reason why I love partnering with Susanna to write this book is because I really struggle with it. And she is someone who has really learned to see the upside of uncertainty. So I tend to focus on the downside. She tends to focus on the upside. So for me, really, this project started well over a decade ago. One of the things that I do in my professional career is I get to interview innovators. I've gotten to interview some of the big names that we all know and a lot of the names that maybe don't make it into print, but who have done some really fascinating things nonetheless. And one thing I noticed about all of them is to do anything new, they all had to really face uncertainty. They all had to overcome the uncertainty that came with doing new things. So I was just so curious. I wanted to know for myself. How did they do it? How did they figure out? How did they make the decision? How did they make the choice? Now, the great thing is, as you might have guessed, Susanna and I, we've been married 25 years. We have four kids. And so I've also gotten to experience it. I've gotten to experience it from the seat of being really anxious, but also being with somebody who, who's able to see that upside. And so we've we've done some big moves, you know, changed fields, changed careers, changed countries, changed. And we could go on and on. But so I've learned to see that upside of uncertainty, but I still struggle with it. And, and, you know, to be honest, we were already working on this book when the pandemic hit, and I was still freaking out. And there was this moment where Susanna said to me, if you can't use these tools to help yourself, you don't get to write this book. And I was like, oh man, that's some serious skin in the game. But she was absolutely right. And for me, there was this moment that was really important to me because it's when it shifted much more from kind of looking back and interpreting to an immediate like experience with it. And it was, you know, most of my income comes from teaching and speaking, and that like disappeared in five days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know,
0: <laughs> I know that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You, yeah, it's terrifying. And we had kids in university. We, just moved from renting to buying and and I was staying up late at night. How am I gonna make this work? And then I'm waking up early. And Susanna makes this comment to me. And the next morning I wake up really early, just my mind like on fire. You know, anybody who's felt anxious knows what that feels like. Your mind's on fire with anxiety. And I went downstairs and I was in the middle of something and I remembered what Susanna had said to me. And so I remembered one of the tools, which is to focus, not When you are facing uncertainty and you have a setback, don't just focus on what you have lost, focus on what you still have. And at that moment, I had this sudden shift of perspective where I was realized I was grinding these coffee beans and they had this rich, earthy smell that I appreciated suddenly. And then I saw the sunlight coming in across the kitchen and it was so beautiful. I just realized this ordinary morning is so beautiful and I hadn't even been noticing it. And then I realized even if I lost it all, you know, couldn't pay for the tuition, lost the apartment, lost it all, lost the job, it would be okay. Because I would still have the next beautiful morning with that next cup of coffee, and I would even have the relationships with the people I love. And, you know, it'd be okay. It'd be fine. And so for me, there's a very personal dimension to this because I have used and continue to use these tools both to deal with, you know, what we call unplanned uncertainty. That's like, you know, pandemic happening to you. But also... Planned uncertainty. When you say I'm going to take a risk, like I'm going to do something new, we use these tools to help us do those new things.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, as I'm listening to you, I won't go into too much detail, but I personally wrote a book 11 years ago. It came out, and it was a very controversial idea at the time, and so controversial in the sense that it challenged an assumption that is very, very deep. And I knew that I was right, but I also knew that the resistance to it was really strong and I had to make a decision. Am I going to persist or am I going to just revert to my former career? And so it's really taken, and my audience knows this, that it's taken a decade for the world to see that everything that I wrote 12 years ago was accurate. Mm. So there were times where I didn't want to go on. Like this is this is too painful. This is not enjoyable. This is not being rewarded in the way that I would want it to in the sense that I believe that this could really be transformational and and it was being resisted in the business world. In other areas in education specifically, it wasn't. But there was enough pieces along the way to keep me going and encourage me to keep going. One, just being that I believe fundamentally in what I was saying. But something else that happened for me is that I found somebody that I could trust and tell how I was feeling. And somebody who effectively became a coach to me on a regular basis that could dust me off and push me back into the game and say, just keep doing what you're doing and it's going to work inevitably. And had I not had somebody, and so I sense that you have each other for that, Mm -hmm. but in the scheme of everything that you're recommending for people, and we're really talking about leaders to be dealing with, with ambiguity and there's so much change in the world and they make a decision and it doesn't go the way they want to, are you recommending that people have coaches or that they find like a a group of people who can be their counsel, you know, a tribal council, if you will. What are your thoughts on
1: that? Definitely. It comes up in so many places in the book, actually. So sometimes our tool kits for the different parts of this navigation of, of uncertainty, they overlap. But one thought is that I was thinking of is under the Dumbo feather tool, because Dumbo feathers, I don't know if you remember the Disney elephant who thinks he needs the feather to fly. Ultimately, he doesn't, but he wasn't going to try without that little feather that Bird told him, you need this and then you can do it. People can be Dumbo feathers. There are these things that encourage us that tell us we can do it. And we personally both do have life coaches. Mm -hmm. Most weeks, we have a set time where we talk with these people, just like you said, to help us kind of just clarify like what's going, be a listening ear I definitely encourage people to have that.
2: I just want to jump in, in case, Mark, some of your listeners are the more skeptical variety, you know, coming from academics, anything that isn't empirical, supported in a large quantitative study is always hard to believe. So I just want to highlight, in writing this book, we developed over 30 plus tools and we tried to organize them around this metaphor of this first aid cross for uncertainty these four categories of things to do and one of the things susanna's talking about is in this priming section or preparing section and and i just want to highlight that the tools we talk about in the book are a mix some of the things we draw from good old classical empirical research. Some of them we drew from the interviews we did and interviewees could say, this is what I did. And yet others were ones where we had to observe across many interviewees the thing they did. And then we tried to put it in language that people could remember. And, you know, Dumblefeather is one of those ones where you could easily like discount it. And say, oh my gosh, give me a break. Isn't that a kid's movie or what? You know, none of that's real. But the truth is... Most people we talked to had exactly that. They had some foundation they could hold on to that would help them continue to believe, continue to move forward when they were being challenged. And they also had to be careful of what we called quest destroyers. And these are people who, whatever it is, sometimes for selfish reasons, sometimes for compassionate reasons, you know, a parent who has worked their entire life as an employee and just can't understand what it means to take a risk and be an entrepreneur that like, like their intentions are good they just don't really know and they don't understand and so we talk about both being aware of quest destroyers and then holding on to dumbo feathers
0: yeah i i think we've had enough conversations in this podcast where people are less skeptical where there isn't data if there are stories to support it. You know what I mean? But you have the data. And speaking of data, you mentioned that economists at Stanford and the International Monetary Fund, interesting combination, believe that uncertainty has been rising steadily over recent decades. And I didn't understand that. Like, How can uncertainty be on the rise?
2: Well, yeah, great. So just if people want to look it up, it's called the World Uncertainty Index. And to be clear, it only measures economic and political uncertainty. And so since the 1990s, it's been on a fairly consistent increase, of course, with ups and downs. So how could uncertainty be on the rise? There has to be some driving force, and I could name many of them, but to me, the number one driving force is the role of technology. And that is it has brought down the barriers to create, to transact, to connect, to interact, to invent, so that today it's easier than it ever was to create a new business, to communicate, to get something done, which means there's 7 billion people in the world where it's potentially possible we could all be creating. And that creates this kind of wild environment, so to speak, where you have tens of millions of startups being founded every year. And and those startups, some of which succeed, rise up to challenge large corporations. And there's other driving factors. So, for example, one thing we know about innovation is it really comes about by recombining ideas. Well, the the good news is the more people who can participate in the world through education and, and through work, there are more possibilities of recombining ideas. And so mm-hmm. I just think we're on this trajectory of that feels very uncertain. But to me, there's a very optimistic side of it, which means there's also possibility tied to it. Now, I, I want to be careful. We both do. We recognize there are downsides to uncertainty. And there are some kinds of uncertainty, say wars and pandemics, where mm-hmm. it's mostly downside, right? We, we nonetheless are able to pull out some upsides. But I tend to get really excited about all the possibilities that come about because it's easier to create and connect and transact. So I get really excited about those and I, I tend to focus more on those.
0: So you just sort of listed some uncertainties. Pretty much every economist is predicting that we're going to have a recession here and some are predicting one of the top CEOs in the world basically said it's going to be Armageddon here soon. So laying out the premise that we're heading for a very serious recession, I don't know that we are, but let's just assume that this is on people's minds and it's being reinforced by exceedingly high gas prices and massively high inflation and a war that's keeping us from getting food. All those kinds of conditions are creating stress, but they can also create a sense of anxiety about the uncertainty of where things are going. So let's talk about what tools you recommend. How would you advise people listening to this to start thinking about and to use your language, reframing even how this could affect them?
2: So, yeah, I think it would be helpful at this point to kind of explain these four arms of this first aid cross for uncertainty. So again, core idea, we can develop the ability to face uncertainty or what you said, uncertainty ability. There are four categories of tools that can help us. Number one, reframing from loss, that uncertainty is a source of loss, to that there's a possibility hidden within it. Number two, priming, like how you might Prime a wall to paint it or a prime a pump to get water out. There's ways you can prepare in advance so that you're less stressed. Uh, doing, there are ways to take action reinforced by some really great evidence and research that lead to better outcomes in uncertainty. And lastly, sustaining. And you've heard us talking a little bit about this idea of sustaining yourself through the difficult emotions that come with especially unplanned uncertainty, but also setbacks and challenges. Obviously, the reframing and sustaining are a little more cognitive in nature, and the priming and doing are a little more action-oriented in nature. But when we think about sustaining and reframing, number one, reframing is an interesting one if you want to talk about like a global recession or something like that, because number one, it's true if you actually look at some of the evidence, many of the best startups are founded in downturns. So I will just leave that out there. And I want Susanna to get a chance to explain, but I I wanted to say something about sustaining. So one of the tools in the sustain arm is what's called the worst case scenario. It's actually a tool that therapists actually often use to help people who are in distress. And it's that as human beings, we tend to think in very binary terms. That means everything's going to be okay or everything's going to be Armageddon, as you put it. And then we tend to not really touch or unpack what that worst case scenario is. Instead, we we worry about it and we feel anxious about it instead of actually walking that worst case scenario all the way through. So let me give you an example. This is another tool I used when I was stressed about the pandemic. I walked through the worst case scenario and I said, okay, so what would happen If I went bankrupt and I lost my job, well, is it true that like, I would have no work at all. Well, probably not. I mean, people still, you know, want to learn and things like that. So, you know, I might lose my apartment in the city. So we live in Paris, France. We're very lucky. But, um, you know, I might lose my apartment. And, you know, the kids might have to pull out of university or go somewhere where it's for free. And But what would happen? You know, we could probably move to a small town, maybe somewhere near the coast that's not too expensive. And maybe we'd have a little bit quieter life where we'd have a little more time to read and write and do the things we want to do. And every once in a while I do some teaching gigs and make ends meet. and and all of a sudden, like that worst case scenario didn't sound so bad. In fact, I almost kind of wanted to go live that life. And so I think that's one of the really important things is to sustain yourself by using these tools. Maybe I'll, I'll let Susanna jump in here and tell you a little bit more about either reframing or sustaining.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I agree that this is a very strange time. And, you know, on a lot of these interviews, people have asked us, so what do we do about all this chaos that's happening? Because, you know, the U.S. is having a lot of other political, strange things happening. And I think <laughs> it's really terrifying for people. But globally, we do have these massive shifts right now. And I think that, like Nathan said, if we can figure out what is in our control and what's not, that's a reframing exercise, To really stop and say, what can I do about this war? You know, really for me, it comes down to how can I help my own kids have less distress? Like I start local. I start with my own family. They get so sad. I mean, unfortunately, they're not seeing it as much anymore and the war isn't being covered as much, which it should be. But we're just worrying now about gas prices and all these things that aren't really heart space questions. And so I think we really need to become more human when things are really dire, because that's going to be the only thing that will save us, to be honest. Mm -hmm. is not competing and fighting for resources and toilet paper. We need to start feeling like, hey, we're all in this together. And that will be the only hopeful thing. And when a CEO is saying it's going to be Armageddon, I feel sad because Mm -hmm. to me, that's not leadership. Is he's hoping that he gets to be the one that predicted some big thing? I mean, Even if it is, how does that help anyone? That's my question. Yeah, and maybe
2: let me give you another example of CEOs and framing. So reframing, what is it? So there's a deep body of psychological research and research in behavioral economics that shows the way you describe something affects how you think, decide, and act. So very famous Nobel Prize winning study by Kahneman and Tversky in which they offered people a treatment to a disease. And To simplify it, one treatment has a 5% chance of failure, the other a 95% chance of success. Mm -hmm. Even though they're statistically identical, we all want the success because we are wired to be loss averse and gain seeking. So that translates in an important way because If uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin, if when something happens, we focus and frame it around the uncertainty, we're all going to be freaking out. And we saw this already. I saw many leaders during the COVID pandemic say things like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. This is worse than the Great Depression, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, people in those organizations were freaking out. By contrast, I saw other CEOs and leaders frame it. In terms of the opportunity. Now, you may say, oh, what opportunity? Well, take an example here. Airbnb, they are, were in one of the industries the most negatively affected by COVID. And what does Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, say in response to this? He says, this is our moment. This is our chance. Great companies are forged in moments of crisis. This is our chance to show we're one of those great companies. And I think not only did they make it through that, they even like shifted their focus to, they were able to pivot quickly to, offer different kinds of rentals. So people wanting to get out of the city, for example, but also they were able to help the most vulnerable members of their platform, these kind of super hosts whose kind of whole living was revolved around Airbnb. They actually created a little fund and offer those folks grants to help them get through a hard time. And I just think, again, a recession, again, I feel sorry for she or he or whoever it was, you know, who says this is going to be an Armageddon because what does that do? It just gets everybody focused on the negative and. And there's even empirical research to support this. Companies that are at threat of being disrupted by a new technology that frame it instead in terms of the opportunity are the ones who are able to adapt. You know, Barnes & Noble and Borders two book companies both equally threatened by the rise of amazon.com borders frames it more as a threat barnes and noble focuses more on the opportunity and lo and behold barnes and noble has managed to find a way through a very challenging business model attack or disruption and so i just i hope that as we go into it again we all acknowledge the downsides there's no doubt about that but the way through it is to focus on what are the upsides? What are the possibilities? And, and by the way, everybody listening, you are all you have already developed uncertainty ability. You know this because you went through the pandemic. And I know you can say, here were some of the good things that came out of that experience.
0: I really appreciate you both punctuating that, the whole idea of focusing on what are the possibilities here versus, you know, how are we not doomed?
1: Mark, I just wanted to add, I really do feel like even though I was talking about heart space and being loving and all that, I really do believe that under the prime category of tools, There are things that you can do. So like knowing what your riskometer is, that's where you each person can chart. Like, what are the biggest fears? What are the aversions that you have around risk? What are the affinities where you naturally just think I could do that? Get together as a family or as a team, an organization and be like, "Okay, if these things happen, who's going to be able to lead us out of that? So that's one thing. But doing things from your values and not just making up random goals, like we're going to get through this war and have no debts or, you know, don't make up dumb stuff that isn't in your control. Think about what can I do even in families? Okay, how can we drive less? Let's make it fun. Get on the frontier of having entertainment that's in your backyard. Like we can take little steps and it feels empowering to figure out where can we make a change. Because when we just hear like we're all going down, it literally, our brains, our brains hate that. And we will just be all depressed and like, we won't be useful for anything. So we really do have to keep our spirits up by recognizing where can we do something and where can we not, and then forget where we can't do anything and have fun with the stuff we can.
0: I mean, that's the big leadership takeaway, which, you know, obviously underlying all of this is making us better leaders. And that is the takeaway, especially If you've got a doom and gloom boss, you know, we're screwed. We're never going to meet our goals. You know, the whole team is going to sink. So I think we know that intuitively. But when we get under stress and we get into a moment of uncertainty, we've all been around people who are yours and kind of just bringing everybody else down. You know, it's interesting. Jane McGonigal happened to I don't know that she anticipated the pandemic, but she nevertheless prior to had a group of people where they did an immersion and she basically said, okay, here are the circumstances. We've now been faced with a global pandemic and everybody is saying this is going to be the worst thing ever. What do you do? And so the people that actually spent the time thinking through how do you navigate through this, they didn't know that a real pandemic was coming. But she then went back to see how these people were doing during the pandemic, and they were actually thriving because they had already thought it through. It was like, okay, this is actually happening, and now we already know what to do, and so let's go from there. And I think priming people is a really wonderful tool, and having managers say what happens to us and get people thinking right now, what do we do if sales drop by 20% in the next six months? How do we respond to that? So that people aren't getting and marinating in fear when they wake up one day and they see the stock price down or they they see a big cancellation of a sale. So I think this is really, really great. Speaking of reframing the way that we see experiences in life, tell us about your research and what you call finite players And I'll uh, change the pronunciation here. Infinite players, and there you meant infinite. But
2: (laughs) tell us about that. It's so fun that you mentioned that because as you were talking about leaders kind of freaking out, you know, what happens if sales drop 20 percent? I was just thinking how we we've actually been brought in to help companies who are struggling with that, you know. So, for example, a pharmaceutical firm that was, you know, in development wrestling with, you know, is Pfizer going to acquire us? What if our therapy indication doesn't work out and so much energy getting sucked into that anxiety instead of the positive forward momentum. So
1: actually,
2: yeah, you jump. So
1: we can actually say that in that discussion with them, we actually shared this tool of the finite and infinite. I like how you did that (laughs) of way of living life because they were all so freaked out about their particular roles and if something was not going to work out and how it would all crumble and they would have no jobs in a year. And I said, okay, guys, let's talk about this. And I centered it around the story from the Tour de France because we're in France and they knew all these guys better than I did. But basically, there was a race and there were these two bikers that were both so premium, such great athletes. But they rode a 12-kilometer section called the Puy de Dome, which has a saw-like hill thing, like teeth, up, down, up, down, up, down. And for 12 straight kilometers, they rode shoulder to shoulder And it was this beautiful moment because ultimately the underdog who had never won the tour beat this other guy out for that day. And basically, long story short, this one who won that segment but never won a race, even though he did 14 races, I believe, he was called the eternal second. So he never, ever won, but he loved biking and racing so much. He was everybody's favorite cyclist. And in fact... I read something where he was studied more often, even in academic studies, he was written up more times than any other racer ever because no one could figure out where is this coming from? Why is he so happy? Why is he so thrilled? Why
2: is he so beloved? Yeah. I was really all the studies were why is he so beloved? And I think a statement at the end of his career again races the Tour de France 14 times, never wins. Somebody criticized him and said you know, his name was Raymond Pouledor. And he said, Raymond, you always had your head in the clouds. And he said, You know, I thought about it and it was true. I never woke up in the morning thinking about winning, I was just so happy. To be able to race.
1: He said it was good enough. Every day what I was doing, it was good enough. I didn't need it. I didn't yeah. need to win.
2: So the idea of finite and infinite players actually comes from a philosopher named James Cars, who was at NYU. And what he argued is that there are essentially finite players and infinite players. So what if what's a finite player? Finite player is somebody who sees life as a game to win. They tend to see the roles, the rules, the boundaries as fixed. And for them, uncertainty is a threat because it is a threat to them winning, to getting to CEO, to getting to the top, to getting some X amount of money, whatever it may be. And he really kind of paints a picture of how life is, uh, you know, at the end of that game is not, not very fun for those folks. But by contrast, there are other people who tend to see the world in more infinite terms, and that is the boundaries and the roles and the rules and even the purpose of the game are all there really to be played with for the joy of playing the game. And so that Raymond Poulidor is a great example of someone. For him, the race was about the joy of the race. And so I think this finite infinite game is really useful because what we help this pharmaceutical company do is to focus on what are the other games we could be playing? What are the other ways this could work out? Like So for example, what if Pfizer doesn't acquire you, but what if another company did? Or what if you find another treatment indication that does work out? Or what if it doesn't work? Think about if you put your heart and soul into this development work, the skills that you might develop, the credibility you develop, which could lead to your next role. Get focused on the joy of playing the game, the fun of the game, the energy of doing things well. And you know what? The the rest will take care of itself. And you don't have to win to be the most beloved cyclist in the Tour de France. And you don't have to win in these traditional terms to be the happiest or most productive or most inspiring person in your workplace or leader around you
1: and you don't have to win to survive i mean i think at the end of the day sometimes Mm -hmm. that's how our brains are wired is like if i don't get this i'm dead and that's where you have to walk through and go, wait a second. And you know, it's fun because these pharmaceutical people started talking. They knew more about this race than I did, but they're like, oh yeah, that's so true. And and then they were like, we should be having more fun together, guys. Like, cause they get kind of competitive even within their own teams of like whose idea is going to work. And anyway, it's a really, really great reminder. And we use this in our marriage. We're like, okay, how do we be more infinite right now? And it's kind of fun cuz then you're like okay what rules do you want to break you know it really expands like what's possible
0: one of the strong recommendations you make is to expand our curiosity to accept that life is fluid to appreciate that what's happening in any given moment is almost always new and i suppose that overconfident leaders lean into rigidity to make themselves feel more comfortable like we've made our plan this is the way we're going And you talk about cognitive flexibility, and I just think this is such a great topic. So, tell us about that.
2: Yeah, actually, it was the topic of my dissertation. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. I did my PhD at Stanford, and uh, there was a kind of a perspective that came out of Stanford called population ecology, and what it argued is that firms don't change, organizations don't change, they die. And they're just reborn, you know, new organizations are born in their place. And it's drawn from, of course, this biological metaphor of how populations of plants or animals kind of rise up and expire over many centuries. But the funny thing about that is it just felt intuitively wrong. And when I went out and interviewed entrepreneurs and innovators, it was like such a mismatch with what they did. I mean... Great entrepreneurs and innovators changed all the time. If you look, for example, at PayPal, they changed their business eight times before they figured out what was the right business. And so what I really became curious about was this idea of how is it that we update our mental model of the world around us. And what happens, you're right in the sense, this danger that leaders have, experts have it even worse. So Mm -hmm. there's some work that highlights, and, and I've done some work on this, it shows that expertise is a valuable thing. It's a good thing, right? But it is also very dangerous because we engage in this, what's called cognitive entrenchment where We tend to ignore evidence that is contrary to our own perspective. In fact, there's a wonderful study that looked at the near misses for a Nobel Prize breakthrough. So this kind of mRNA technology, and they were looking at who are the scientists who were really close to making the Nobel Prize winning breakthrough but didn't make it? And what it was always this cognitive rigidity, which was they ignored anomalies in their data, they ignored voices from outside their field, and they ignored the voices that said they should go a different direction. So it was very clear these liabilities of cognitive rigidity. By contrast, cognitive flexibility is being able to update based on new information coming through. Another way of saying it, you mentioned Carl Weick. Carl Weick, this great organizational theorist, he talked about the attitude of wisdom, which was believing in yourself and your idea just enough to take action. Because let's be clear, uncertainty is Probably the best antidote to uncertainty is to take action. But doubting yourself just enough to listen to other voices that might be pointing you a different direction. Now, that doesn't mean listen to every voice. The first person that says, well, that's stupid. Why would you do that? That's not what you're listening to. But you're listening to those voices that are credible, that are informed, that are really actually pointing you towards a different direction. And and yeah, I have many stories of this. I don't want to talk your ear off, but I can say we have some great empirical evidence that shows that you know for example i study this in the solar photovoltaic industry that the teams the companies led by leaders that had this cognitive flexibility were better able to update their technologies to stay at the technology frontier and to survive in a very turbulent industry
0: stay curious and stop defending one's own position is pretty much your takeaway right
2: yeah, it is really, I mean, I, I want to repeat this attitude of wisdom because here's the thing: like if you're doing something new, like you talked about the book you published, there's no doubt that people are not gonna understand it fully, or you will gonna have naysayers and you have critics. And so you, you have to believe in yourself enough to move forward. But you wanna listen to the handful of voices that are well informed that say, Hmm, maybe you should change it this way. You know, So a great example of this is uh, I interviewed an entrepreneur named Mike Cassidy. Um, the guy has created over a billion dollars in startup value. And he talked about co-founding this company called Ultimate Arena with this gentleman named Thresh. What a name, right? Well, that's his Mm -hmm. gaming name. He's the world champion of this first-person shooter game called Doom. And Ultimate Arena was this idea where you could come together with people you don't know, put a little money in a pot, shoot them up, and whoever wins gets the money. And Thresh was really good at like beating the bushes to get new players to join, and so like, overall like the number of users was going up but mike was really digging into the data and saying i don't think something's not right i people are leaving so he went and interviewed these people who are leaving so why are you leaving why are you quitting and they're like it isn't fun it's like a bully who I don't know is stealing my money. That's not what I want to do. I want to meet friends and play. And so anyway, Mike Cassidy came back to the engineering team at at Ultimate Arena and said, we've got to change direction. And at least half the team refused. They, They would not see it. And so what in that is the attitude of wisdom? It is that the voice of the customer is there telling you, this isn't what I want. That's a voice you need to listen to. Or somebody who says, you know what? That's a cool idea, but have you thought about X? If you hear that X three or four times, you should probably think about X or at least see how it plays into your idea. And and just because somebody says, Mark, if you said to me, Nathan, I don't believe anything you say, I believe uncertainty only has downsides. I would say to you, well, Mark, you're right. Uncertainty has some downsides. But it also has some upsides. We can, how do we tolerate the tension between two ideas possibly being true at the same time? Ooh, that's interesting.
0: (laughs) You know, I took literally, I read them this morning before we started talking, 14 pages of notes from your book. And when I was done, I I realized, okay, no matter what questions I want to ask, I'm never going to get to them all. But there were two that stood out that I want to go into with you. And the first one has to do with constantly experimenting as a means to defining what works and what doesn't in a way that doesn't have to carry failure. Because I think we're so failure averse. And I can tell you, in, you know, having had a, a long corporate career, the higher I got, the more risk averse people above me were. And so they were less willing to try things and they were harder on you if what you attempted to do failed. So, you know, you experience that once or twice and you go, well, I'm not going to stick my neck out anymore. But you have this idea around doing little mini experiments as not just a compromise, but as a means to proving where to go next. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, so I love the idea of pivots. I know I did not get a Ph.D. at Stanford, so I did art history masters and I'm kind of in the textile industry. But one thing I loved about being at Stanford when Nathan was doing his Ph.D., I started a clothing line. And I was able to really see how that idea of pivoting was so cool because baked into that idea is this notion that like a basketball player where you pivot your foot, you are moving where you've been, but you're grounded in learning from where you were. And so I always think anything that you did where you learned, oh, that didn't work, it's so cool because it's one less thing now that you're not going to try that again, but you learned something from that. And so... Whenever we're trying these little experiments, I mean, even with my clothing line, I mean, it was a very small thing. It was me and Nathan. He was helping me with my website. I was working with people, you know, that were making it and I had pattern makers and stuff. But it was really scary because we had little kids and here he was getting his PhD. We were in a very expensive place on his one stipend. It was ridiculous, really. We were living in student housing with four kids. But what I will say is we did use this method of changing how we were doing it. At one point, we're like, okay, well, we're going to sell in stores and and then no one took my line. So it was like, okay, maybe I'm just going to sell in trunk shows. So we tried that and that was kind of work. Then it was like, well, can we do catalog? In a lot of ways, we did stupid stuff. I mean, this was before Instagram. I spent tons of money on premium mail out catalogs in 2006. I mean, that was silly, but we learned so much from that and we still did get some, I mean, I bought a mailing list. I'm just remembering of names from like some random thing, but I got great customers from it and I learned a lot. So when we have failure, if you don't let it be this thing that, oh, I was so stupid and just more like pivots, like just shifting slightly in a new direction, you're going to have much more outcomes that are positive.
2: And for folks in a corporate environment, I recognize this. I've experienced it and I see it all the time. And I would just say my advice to you would be in corporate environments, we're often tempted to lead with what I would call vision first. So we sell a big vision and then we're suddenly on the hook to like really deliver. And listen, many leaders have not seen the light. They will see the light eventually, that they cannot continue to execute in the way they have and be successful. But until they see the light, I would encourage you to do like secret experiments without telling anybody. So if somebody <laughs> says, I want you to go be in charge of this initiative, rather than like going out and making a big A plan and then executing on it, say, how do I break this down into smaller experiments? My leader doesn't need to know about that. But then I can come back to them and say, well, put it in the language they can understand. We ran these small pilots and we found this out and we did this and we did that. And, and they'll look at you like you were like, you're a genius, and you will, you will be more successful than if you tried to plan to execute on that.
0: I'm a total fan of pilots. Yes. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about quickly is this idea of serendipity and how to develop the ability to identify when fortuitous events, moments that seem too good to be true, sudden leaps of insight occur, things that just are luck. Yeah. But you talk about them, so I wanted to dig into that.
2: Yeah, we call it magic. And you know, I'm, I'm an empiricist and a skeptic, so why am I talking about magic? Because, as you said, they're the leaps of insight, the moments of connections, the things we can't quite understand, or we definitely could not plan in advance. But they're real and they happen all the time. And if, again, you're more on the skeptical side, then I would talk to you about like the mechanics of networks and how they work and how we can connect through weak ties to many individuals. And that leads increases the probability of a fortuitous connection. But let me back down from my, you know, kind of nerdy academic self and just say over and over and over in the stories we saw. That the people who persisted had these moments of insight, of connection that really mattered. And and my my mentor at Stanford, one of my mentors, Tina Seelig, she describes it like a bit like the wind. You don't control when it blows. You don't know when this serendipity is going to happen, but you can hoist a sail. And you can do things to make a bigger sail that increase the probability of something happening. And what does that mean more tactically? It's getting out there. It's going out to that evening event and saying hello to somebody who you don't want to say hello to. And, you know, I love one of the stories we talked about was the founder of Goldie Blocks, this, you know, engineering toys for girls. And she just said, talk to everybody because. She was having lunch and just talked kindly to the waiter who was serving her and mentioned what she was working on. The waiter's like, oh, yeah, uh, my aunt's like an editor, like I think it was like the New York Times. She'd love what you're doing. Let me connect you to her. And th- mm-hmm. That's what I mean. So talk to everybody, step out there, take those risks, and the wind will eventually blow.
0: Love it. So, Nathan and Susanna, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask our, in this case, guests a series of quick answer questions with the intention of just learning a little bit more about you personally. And what I'd like to do is to learn more about your interests, influences, and life philosophy. And I thought maybe... Let's have you both do this, and we'll just alternate the questions. So it's your turn. When you hear each question, give us your best instinctive answer and answer them, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you guys ready? Yep. Yeah. All right. Very good. Something important you specifically learned in the process of writing your book.
1: So I would say it's a little bit of a selfish answer, but that Nathan and I are a good working team. So we haven't worked before this, really, except for when we met. We were scholars together as like 19-year-olds, but- We work well, and so it's really fun to be back in that arena again with him.
0: Leadership practices and qualities, you believe every workplace manager now must cultivate, nurture, and master.
2: Uncertainty isn't going away, and so we need to develop uncertainty ability and see it as a real thing like any other capability we would develop because it helps us both to be calm in the face of uncertainty, but also get to the possibility that's on the other side of that uncertainty.
0: Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life.
1: Plant a garden.
0: (laughs) Your synonym for the word heart.
2: For me, it's earnest. It's a really a wholehearted, disciplined, mindful, action-oriented approach to life and work. It's doing the work for the sake of doing it well.
0: One subject you believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on.
1: I would say emotional hygiene and self and encouraging others to do it as well.
0: A book besides your own that you wish everyone in the world would read.
2: The Colossus of Marusi by Henry Miller. It's a beautiful, euphoric exploration of what really matters in life. Wow. Prediction about the
0: future you're pretty sure will come true.
1: You know, I don't have any predictions, but I think the truest thing is that to love and be loved is the greatest gift.
0: quality you admire most in other people.
2: Contrarians and Susanna is a contrarian. I <laughs> love it. Because they challenge our assumptions. They help us see things in new ways and question what we all believe is true. Maybe it's not true. You sure about that? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I like
0: you. <laughs> Trait that destroys the most leadership careers.
1: I would say arrogance.
0: It's the number one answer. Like I mean completely number one answer. So and yet there's still arrogant leaders out there. Skill improvement you're working on right now.
2: Uh, not being arrogant. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, comes yes, to mind. <laughs> yeah. That, yes, that's true. But also, I would say I'm constantly asking what's the infinite game I, I could be playing now, often with Susanna's help to remind me to ask that question.
0: And a perfect question for you, Susanna, your strategy for maintaining strong mental
2: health.
1: So I guess I can't say it enough. I do. I, again, daily emotional check-ins and life coach sessions. Those two.
2: Not daily life conversation, No. Weekly. No. Weekly or even monthly. <laughs> but like letting
1: your, letting <laughs> no. yourself have those, you know?
2: And then
0: finally, Nathan, something you teach at INSEAD in Paris that makes you unique amongst
2: other top business schools. <laughs> Well, number one, I teach uh, the upside of uncertainty or how to develop uncertainty ability. But number two, I really teach the whole spectrum of innovation and established organizations. So how do we get ideas? How do we test ideas? And how do we build a culture of innovation? And that might sound simple, but many people have a very narrow answer to that. But I have a really broad focus on the people, process leadership, culture, structure, governance of that. So I I think that's pretty unique, the how of getting it done. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for going through this with me. That was fun doing the tag team here. So thank you very much for going through that. Yeah. Thank
1: Thank you. you. That was fun.
0: Before you guys go, I want to give you the floor and ask if there's any information in the book that we didn't discuss that you think would be especially important for and helpful for our leadership audience to hear from you as we say goodbye? I think
1: we didn't touch on as much the tools around how to take action and how to do things that are uncertain. And one of my very favorites is this idea of activating and unlocking the potential of something. And what's really cool about it is there's lots of great stories, but basically it came about because Nathan, when he was first trying to figure out how to talk to managers and leaders, he was saying, we're going to manage uncertainty. And they would say, I love the topic, but I don't like the word manage. And really, it came down to this idea that was so obvious, you know, as we worked on it more, but kind of this idea that you can't really control it. It's pretty unwieldy. And so when we recognize this other idea that uncertainty actually has potential kind of already baked inside of it, there are potential possibilities that could happen. And clearly, whoever's working on that project or that uncertain thing will unlock something different. But the idea that it's basically inherently maybe already within there, like a little nugget, it's a cool thing to think about as individuals. What is something I'm facing? What potentially is already there that I could unlock and activate? I love that idea.
0: Great.
2: Nathan? Yeah, I would just say for leaders, it's absolutely possible to develop this as an ability in organizations. There are organizations we are aware of and that we talk to that actually hire for this and train it. But it really starts with you as a leader, a leader who doesn't have this uncertainty ability, can't lead others through it. So I think the place to start is with yourself. And my number one takeaway would be, you know, rather than being afraid of uncertainty, how do I ask for any uncertainty I face? How do I transform that into a possibility? And that's the moment of what we call transilience. It's beyond resilience. Resilience is, you know, taking a punch and staying standing. But transilience is letting uncertainty make you stronger.
0: I love it possibility thinking, we'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Congratulations on your book. It's very rare that a husband and wife would write a book together. So congratulations on pulling off something that I think is really, really helpful and informative. And on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much. Thank
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mark.
0: Before we go, I will leave you pondering this quote from former podcast guest, Herminia Ibarra. She says... The paradox of change is that the only way to alter the way we think is by doing the very things our habitual thinking keeps us from doing. Her point, of course, is that leaders must act, not just think. That's how change occurs. And as always, I ask you to please keep introducing our show to your friends and colleagues and also subscribe to it if you haven't already. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic. Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and originally performed by the great Duke Ellington. Our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And as always, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yount, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I will leave you, as always, with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.